Let's pray before we go to God's word together. Lord, we are grateful to you for that cross. Help us now and open our eyes to the beauty of that cross, to what needs to be seen in your word, what needs to be heard from your word, what needs to be applied from your word. Lord, we need you, we trust you. In Jesus' name, and God's people said, please be seated, please be seated. It's time to go to God's word together. If you, if you have your Bible or your Bible app, it is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, it's not Habakkuk chapter 4, because Habakkuk doesn't have four chapters. We're done with the minor prophet, even though we are strongly considering another minor prophet revisiting Jonah, which was a minor prophet, and he dealt with the kingdom that preceded Babylon, Babylonia or Babylon in Habakkuk. But for this morning, because it's the first one in months, I want to refocus on the beauty of the Lord's Supper. If you're here, you need a Bible. There should be some Bibles in the back. If you need to grab one that you can use, if you don't have one, you can keep it as our gift to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to start reading in verse 17. I'm going to finish in verse 32. I read, you follow along again. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better but for the worse. I've said this before. I'll say it again. You know you're not, you're not, you're in trouble when God's word begins this way. When you receive a letter from God's servant and it says, I can't commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Uh, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we, are not, we may not be condemned along with the world. Stop there. The Lord's Supper. It invokes images depending on your tradition, depending on, your, on how you've grown up, if you've grown up in church you know, or not. Most of the time here at Pines Baptist, you'll have a table right in front here of the platform, and you have the communion trays, and a set of trays is for the bread, a set of trays is for the cup. We all know that that's not how it was in the early church. In the early church, it was mostly a deal, a meal called the agape meal, the, the, the love feast. And, and back in the New Testament, you know, for doing times of Corinth and all, it would be house churches, and you would gather for families, and you would have elders, and you would have a, a deacon, and, and they would have a, a love feast where they would celebrate uh, the goodness of God, salvation in Christ. And out of that love feast then came the observance of the Lord's Supper. It was very natural, very organic, very very just um, realistic and just 
There wasn't a lot of pomp and circumstance like we have today. Not to say that that's wrong, but just so you know and you understand why when he addresses a church, he says, you guys come together and you eat and you don't even wait for each other. You get drunk. What, what's going on with you guys? What kind of witness are you sending out to a watching world? So again, for you and me, we say the Lord's Supper. Most of us, most of us imagine something like what we see here at our church um, when we do observe the Lord's Supper. A table, some trays, the men come forward, they, they hand out the elements, we sing, we partake, and it's very choreographed almost. Okay, not always that way, especially the history of the Lord's Supper. But there is a traditional misunderstanding because if your upbringing is in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, you've been taught that the elements, the actual elements, become the, the body and the blood of Christ, teaching called transubstantiation. And that's a, a common misunderstanding that we reject and we see that the scriptures reject. That what we have before us is a symbolic um, meal that reflects salvation, the, the death of Jesus Christ. Uh, we don't want to simplify it to just, you know, uh, this wafer and this juice or uh, Slim Jim and Diet Coke. The elements are important. The observance of the, of the Lord's Supper is important. But we reject the reality that this becomes, once again we crucify the Savior because this becomes the body and the blood of Jesus. That's a traditional misunderstanding. It's, it's not right. It's not biblical. The Bible would tell you, listen, this is in, uh, it's symbolic. It's something, it's a memorial in remembrance of Christ. He says it. In remembrance of me, do this. So we remember Christ through it. Uh, the Lord's Supper reminds us of, of the death of Christ, and, and it sends a clear message to everyone who will listen. And it's going to be on the screen there behind me. Because of the dying of his body and the shedding of his blood, a holy God has dealt with our sins. That's a big deal. Much bigger than COVID. Much bigger than the presidential election. Much bigger than who's going to be the next Supreme Court justice. Much bigger than that. Because justices come and go, Presidents come and go. Elections come and go. COVID comes and goes. Sin remains and condemns you to an eternity unless it's forgiven by a holy God. You, you follow? So what we have before us this morning, much bigger than whatever you and I are even facing in life. Because what we have is God doing what only God could do for you and me. So when we come and observe the Lord's Supper, we do a few things. Why do we do it? To remember. We do it to remember that, that Jesus has, has, has died on our behalf, to, to reflect on our sin and his promises. You and I have come into this building, and hopefully as, as we get closer to partaking, our minds and our spirits and our hearts will be reminded that, listen, we, we have a commitment to Christ and we have a commitment to each other. That's why we renew it. We renew it. And then we rejoice. Because part of the message is whenever you do observe the supper, you're proclaiming his death until he returns or he comes back. That's the beauty. And that's why we anticipate the return of Jesus Christ. In short, you and I gathered this morning in his name and for his glory and, and purchased and secured by the blood or the death of Jesus Christ. Because we belong to him, we corporately are making a statement that we are a people that have found life through the death of Christ. See, that's what you and I are here this morning. Whether you join us here, whether you're online, but this is why it's so important to be here in person because in person we are proclaiming that we are people who have found life 
through the death of Jesus Christ. The Lord let us know that the commission was to make disciples. But then he leaves behind two ordinances that remind us of, of what we need to do. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And there's a relationship between them. Baptism, it's, it demonstrates our initial identification with Jesus Christ and with each other. We, we saw that a couple of Sundays ago when Asher was baptized. A public profession of faith, or his fa faith went public, and he said, what's happened to me on the inside, this is what we're showing to you on the outside. Dead to sin, alive to Christ. I've made a commitment to Christ, but in that commitment, there's also commitment to one another. And the Lord's Supper celebrates that. Continual identification with Christ and his church. And this is where you and I, there's a somewhat of a disconnect, especially in American Christianity, because we are rugged self-individualists. We're raised that way. This is, this is where you, this is what makes America America. You, 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 don't, you can lift yourself up. You can accomplish the American dream. You can do it. You, you do it. You don't have to depend on anyone. You can do it, and that's good, but when it comes to spiritual matters, we are interdependent. We are interdependent. See, in American Christianity, there's an overemphasis on, of the individual and not the community aspect of Christianity. We all know. But yet, as you and I read the scriptures, the scriptures are written to churches. It's the church at Corinth. It's not Bill at Pines Baptist. It's not Sandy at Pines Baptist. It is Pines Baptist Church. And we tend to read it with individualistic lenses. And we say, oh, this is just for me. No, it's for us. We have a community of faith, and we, we have an overemphasis on just me, me, and me. And it even starts with just what's a Christian. Now, Christianity is something very personal, right? Uh, we, we would say that a Christian, first and foremost, is a person who has been forgiven of their sin and has been reconciled to God the Father through Jesus Christ. Amen? I mean, someone believes that that's not it? That's a Christian. And, and we know that the Christian is the one who's heard the bad news. You're a sinner. A Christian is one that has received and trusted in the good news. Jesus died for sinners. The reality is that you and I, when we recognize we're sinners, we recognize we're idolaters in the heart. Our hearts are constantly fabricating idols. We idolize different things. We idolize the American way, uh, dream. We can idolize our spouse. We can idolize our family. We can idolize making money. We can idolize the lesser gods of entertainment and, and whatever else we bow and the Christian says, listen, I am loving this more than I'm loving God. And therefore, I have sinned against him. The bad news is, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. The good news, Jesus died for sinners. So a Christian is first and foremost someone who's been reconciled to God. Someone who's experienced now the, 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 the forgiveness of sin. But there's much, much more. A Christian is also someone that by virtue of his or her reconciliation with God has also been reconciled to God's people. And this in the midst of the pandemic is where hopefully I'm going to address some things. We belong to one another. I asked the Lord just to be with my mouth today because I don't need my emotions to speak. I need him to speak, right? One of the things I've seen through this pandemic, some of the cracks in the life of Christians is that we have begun to to, to take us at our worst. Just the fact of whether or not I wear a mask, does that really mean that I'm more or less of a person? Think about it. Think about the distinctions you make now if you saw somebody walk in without a mask. Some of you may be saying, hey, it's just precautions. That's true. 
What we have begun to do through this pandemic is to think less of one another. We take us at our worst, not at our best, as if I am COVID positive and I'm out on a mission to infect every single person here today. Who woke up and thought that the pastor would do that today? Not really, right? But you'd be surprised how we deal with one another with suspicion. It shouldn't be that way. We belong to one another. There's a communal aspect to our Christianity. Mark Dever writes in his book, um, What's a Healthy Church? It's on the screen there. Except for the rarest of circumstances, a true Christian builds his life into the lives of other believers through the concrete fellowship of a local church. That takes intention. That means that I orchestrate and I organize my life around God, his people, and the purposes. That means that I protect my calendar against that which would come against that. That would, that would infiltrate and I give up what's best for what's good. I intentionally set it up to fail. I intentionally arrange and engage my family in ways that goes against what the Bible says is a church. He further writes, as we gather to worship God and exercise love and good deeds toward one another, we demonstrate in real life, you might say, the fact that God has reconciled us to himself and to one another. We demonstrate to the world that we have been changed, not primarily because we memorize Bible verses, pray before meals, tie the portion of our income, and listen to Christian radio stations, but because we increasingly show willingness to put up, to forgive, and even to love a bunch of fellow sinners. He's right on. Mark Dever is a pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, and he's right on. Your willingness, my willingness to put up with one another, to show Christian forbearance, to show that the blood that unites is true and it's real, that's what needs to prevail in our midst. The question is, why are you here today in person? Some of you guys are doing it for the first time. Some of you have been here, been doing it for a while, since June when we first went to in-person services. So why are you here? Only you can answer that. The better question is, what took you so long? And only you can answer that before the Lord. If you're online, why are you not here? Only you can answer that. Again, we live life, we interact with strangers, we, we go on vacations, we, we go to outings, we, we mix it up with people, but when it comes to a Sunday morning gathering of the saints, there's something about it that keeps us at home. I, I don't understand it. Let's just be consistent. The Lord's Supper calls us to be honest before the Lord. That's all I'm putting before you this morning. Should you take precautions? Yes. You have some issues? Absolutely. Whether you're online or here, we don't want to presume on anything, but we want to be consistent before the Lord we say we worship. And if we trust him to keep us safe at Publix, we can trust him to keep us safe here. That's what I'm saying, right? Like I've told you before, just make believe you're going to Walmart and the last fee on that Walmart is a cross. You just come here. All right? Shop with us for an hour or so. But the reality is, why are you here? See, you and I cannot demonstrate what, what the New Testament church is on our own. We cannot exercise our gifts. We cannot exercise our talents. We cannot put forth how God has wired us individually and spiritually by staying home and preaching to ourselves in the mirror. We can't. We can't display the gospel of Jesus by ourselves. Is there a, an example of how this looks? Absolutely. We turn to God's word. In your Bible, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We go from one church to another, to the church in Philippi. 
Philippian church was a, almost a model church. I mean, if you study Philippians, we've, we've done it here. We went through Philippians a few years back. And there's no, no glaring uh, doctrinal issues. There's no glaring issues of belief. Uh, the only thing that there's hints of is disunity. I mean, there's two ladies who get called out by name. By name, by the apostle. Says, hey, so-and-so and so-and-so, let's get your act together. So there's, there's hints. But overall, overall. Chapter 2, we have the example of Christ, and I'm going to read it and, and then share with you just some, some, some things that you and I have already looked at before. And just by way of reminder, prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. Let me read and you follow along. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Let me give you some three realities that, that should join our hearts this morning and excite our minds, our love for one another, and our love for the Lord be rekindled and strengthened. Number one, verse one, we have a common experience, that's your key word, we have common experience in Christ. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from your love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, stop there. The common experience that you and I have in Christ is, is seen there. Most translations say if. Especially if you're reading the NIV four times in that verse. If there's this, if there's this, it carries over. The SV just assumes it. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort, and, and then you may think that that's what, what it's trying to say is, if there is, and maybe there's not. All the contrary. The text of the New Testament says, if, because there is. Since would be a better translation in our English. If, and there is. He's stating a fact. Because this is real. You have a shared, common experience in Christ. Before he gets to listen, I want you to behave this way. He reminds him, this is who you are and whose you are. You belong to Christ and you belong to one another. Since there is any encouragement in Christ, because there is encouragement in Christ, he knows it. Remember, he's writing to the church of Philippi. They're experiencing uh, some type of persecution. How do we know that? Backtrack, chapter 1, verse 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, uh, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer in him, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now I hear that I still have. This, the reality is part of believing in Christ is becoming hostile to a non-believing world. And if nothing else, the pandemic has underlined that somewhat. There's churches in some of our union that are forbidden to gather as you and I gather. So the persecution, a, a taste of it somewhat. Now, there's, there's brothers and sisters of the Lord that would laugh at what we're doing here. They woke up 
to having to hide in caverns and having to, to, to meet in secret and the homes were, were being watched. Just think of communist China, just think of Iran, just think of Iraq, just think of the Middle East, just think of places around this world, not across the street, from, but around the world where today people gathered in Jesus' name and there's a husband missing from the family because he's in jail or he's dead. There's children missing because they were taken by the state and they're now wards of the state because you parents decided to say Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Lord and Savior. Not Allah is God. Jesus Christ is God. Can you imagine walking in and before you and I walk out, the Hutchinsons are without their boys or Josh is without, that's him, that's it. See, you and I, there's encouragement. God, Christ comes to our side and he says, because there's an encouragement in Christ, he's the one and the only one that can provide encouragement when everyone else and everything else fails you. Church of Philippi, you're going to go through suffering. You're going to go through persecution. Jesus will be there. Church of Pembroke Pines. You and I will be ostracized. You and I will be misrepresented. You and I will be misunderstood. No matter how winsome we are, no matter how kind we are, no matter how neutral we try to stay, sooner or later you need to make a stand. And if you don't stand for not something, what? You fall for anything. So you must stand firm even if you stand alone. When that time happens... The encouragement of Christ will be there. You have that common experience. Not only that, but he goes on to say, if there's any consolation of love, this is, this, is, this, is, this is what helps alleviate the strain and the toil brought on by the intensity of, of suffering. Jesus comes. It's not just a, a, a feeling. It's an action. There's a consolation of love. There's a fellowship of, of the Spirit. You have the power and the strength to live in, in faithful relationship to one another. We see that in the book of Acts. You, you, if you go to chapter 4, you, you find Peter and John, and they're preaching, and, and they get to go to jail for Jesus. What does the church do? Fall apart? On the contrary. They pray, <laughs> and they shake the house. And it says of them, and it said of them, that they were one accord. Why? Because the Spirit provides the unity. And you and I are called to protect it, and to enjoy it. Finally, he says, if there's any affection uh, and sympathy or, or compassion. You see, it's a call for selfless unity that, that seems nearly impossible in the flesh. And outside of Jesus Christ, it's nearly impossible to get two warring parties. Let me just remind you what Jesus is able to do. If you read Matthew chapter 10, you have the list of the disciples, right? We would later call apostles. There's two names there that normally, they're, they're, they're in the shadows. We all know the, the big three. What are the big three followers of Jesus, at least in the Matthew chapter 10? They always take, uh, they, they come in, in the triplets. They always say the same ones. John, Peter, John, and James. Would you say same one? Okay. Those are the big three. The other, we sort of like, ah, I'm thinking of Judas. No, that didn't last. Uh, uh, how about... Matthew, the tax collector. He's also known as Levi. And right beside him, can you imagine that first Lord's Supper where Christ takes the, the Passover and he converts it to that, to that Lord's Supper that you and I enjoy, saying, it's complete in me. This is the blood of the new covenant. Can you imagine Levi right next to Levi, the tax collector? You can't say government louder. It's Simon the Zealot. 
You can't say revolution and rebellion. As best as we know, those two political parties survive next to each other. Why? Because there was a greater goal that united them. It's possible. We just drink the Kool-Aid of the world too much. We allow our opinions and our holiness to be affected by social media and media outlets instead of the Word of God. Can you imagine? That's like having, I'm Cuban by descent, so I'm going to try to create, if you're a Hispanic or no Latin countries, okay? Uh, that's having Masca, Jorge Mascanosa, which is the, the guy who was, people thought that when Fidel went, he was coming in. And Fidel, at a church service, enjoying the Lord's Supper. Contextualizing your own, whether it's Hitler or the Jew, whether it's Papa Doc or someone's family who just don't do good to him. You can find it. It was Barnabas with Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of the church. He went to him. He said, remember in the book of Acts, I need you to go to Saul of Tarsus. Barnabas tells the Lord, as if he needed to remind the Lord, Lord, um, this guy's kind of bad news, you know what I mean? When whoever meets him doesn't tend to see the sunrise. And the Lord said, he is my choice servant. This is what we have before us. We have a shared experience in Christ. And to my heartbreak, I see Christians fracturing in today's world during this pandemic and forgetting their shared experience in Christ. There's more. There's a shared life in Christ, verses 2 through 4. There's a shared life. Verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Stop there. Just how, how should this work out? Uh, you know, how, how does this look in the church? How does this shared experience, the reality that we belong to one another, how does that flesh out in the church. Well, we see guidelines here. We have principles here. The, the reality is that the, the deepest joy, remember, Paul's writing from jail. So what he doesn't tell them is, hey, can you contact the local chapter of the prison fellowship? Uh, no, no. Complete my joy by getting me out of jail. Complete my joy by make sure you send a nice, nice, heavy care package. No, he says, complete my, my joy by being of the same mind. I can't be there with you, but complete my joy. How does it look like? Just some things that come from the text. Verse 2, there's unity. Right? It says there, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and in full accord and of one mind. Let me tell you what that means. Three things. Number one, there's a shared mind. The ESV speaks of being of the same mind. The NIV speaks of being like-minded. That you think the same. Now, we're not after uniformity. We're after unity, and, and the Greek term is not so much an expression of intellectual agreement, but there's an, one intent and disposition. We love one another enough that we trust one another enough, and we have the best interest of each other in mind. We have a shared mind. We have our minds geared towards what would glorify, what would bring Christ delight. Not my way or that way. What's Christ's way? 
this context, being of the same mind, means to actively strive to achieve a common understanding and, and general agreement. That's why right after that, verse 5 says, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's doable. It's real. Children of God, my brothers and sisters in the Lord, let's be of one mind. It says a shared heart. That's your next one, a shared heart. The ESV and the NIV both speak of the having the same love. How do you, you and I feel about each other? It's a sacrificial type of love because following 5 through 8, it talks about sacrifice. Love is not just a feeling. My wife is here. I can tell her I love her all they want, but sooner or later i got to show it. i got to show it. She'll tell me, hey, show it to me. Yeah, talk is cheap. 33 years later in marriage, I've heard it all. Give me something new. <laughs> it's action. It's a disposition of the will. Something I learned in this church here, love is being what the other person needs when the other person needs it. Did you catch that? Love is what the other person needs when the other person needs it. So it's not about me and my needs. That's like me saying to Monique, hey, I, I, I want to take you to my, your favorite lunch restaurant for lunch. We're going to Don Pepe, right? That might not be her favorite. She's just so very nice. Every Sunday she in, indulges me. But she might want to go eat bait, you know, sushi or something. Whatever. You see, the reality is love is what the other person needs when the other person needs it. And that takes a disposition, an action of the will. I will love you. I will be to you what you need when you need it, even if it's not convenient for me. Yes, dear, I will do the dishes now. Yes, dear, I will throw out the trash now. It's not I'll throw out the trash. Let's see how much I can hold my distension until it rather reeks over there, right? So it's love, it's the action. And he says a, a shared heart. And here's a shared soul. Being in full accord and of one mind. The NIV would say being in one spirit and one mind. It's a matter of the heart. You see, unity is not organizational or outward. It's inward. It's a satisfaction in Christ that takes Christ and, 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 and worships him and embraces him and, and loves him for who he is and then, then finds expression of that love in those that belong to him. And we're re recipients of the love of Christ, a shared soul, one purpose, being minded of one thing. The corporate witness of the body of Christ rides on our outwardly visible love. And again, this is where my heart has been hurting. 2020, I mean, here we thought, can you imagine January 2020? We all had our little cliches, 2020, proper vision, you know, 2020. Churches, we're going with this, 2020, the year of spiritual vision, the year of this. And then some little invisible virus crumbles the world. And I think it was good because it, it, it revealed some fault lines. Do you understand that the pandemic plus elections have created a cancel culture even amongst Christians? We have a shared life in Christ. We have a shared experience in Christ. And if you don't vote like I vote, I unfollow you on Facebook. Really? Is that how thin the blood of Christ is? You cancel me on social media because I spoke up against or I didn't speak like you on this? Really? If you're a Trump supporter, you're a racist. If you're a Biden supporter, you're a, you're a Marxist. You know, there may be truth in both. But as Christians, we should give each other the benefit of the doubt. pandemic has revealed that fault line. You don't, you don't look like me, you don't vote like me, you don't think like me, you don't even say the same things. I cancel you out. 
where, where, where is the blood of Christ? If we could have Simon the Zealot next to Levi the tax collector, if we could have Barnabas go to, go to, uh, to Paul, Saul of Tarsus, if according to Ephesians chapter 2 he's brought together Jews and Gentiles, those are real, those are real distinctions. The level of my melanin on my skin, that's just arbitrary. He has less than I have, and we both have less than you do. And we should all treat each other the same because we're cut from the same cloth. Out of one person, out of one man, he created the entire human race. But then why? Why do we, if you don't look like me, I cancel you out. Oh, you watch CNN. Oh, you that liberal stuff. Yeah. Oh, you watch Fox News. You watch One America Network. You are crazy. That OAN people, they are nuts, man. Everything's a conspiracy. If you sneeze, that was a conspiracy. Then you got the left side over here, MSNBC. I can find really cool words to go with MSNBC. You see, and, and, and again, I know we think this way because I battle it. And I'm a little different, but not very different than you. But what hurts me is when I see interactions with Christians that we refuse, we try to cancel out the shared life in Christ because of an election, because of a pandemic, because we're maskers versus non-maskers. I thought the vaccine and the non-vaccine people were bad. That, law, that war was bad. That's nothing. Vaxxers, anti-vaxxers. If you're a mom, you know what I'm talking about. But this right here, my brothers and sisters in the Lord, we need to recapture the beauty and the depth of the salvation that Christ provides. The ability to sit down with someone who doesn't vote like me and have a conversation and walk out and say, we're still, you know, we're both still making it to, the, to heaven. You know, when you get to heaven, it's not going to go, you know, if you lean right, you go this way. If you lean left, you go that way. You know, no, no. Listen, uh, we're all redeemed by the same blood. You get in. You get in. So, you know, a shared soul. Again, doesn't mean you shouldn't be a good and responsible uh, citizen, okay? You know, you know, you and I, we fight over politics. And here's my question. If you're a Republican, have you read the 2020 Republican platform? If you're a Democrat, have you read the 2020 Democratic platform? I've read both. Because I want to have conversations. Each person running, Trump and Biden, they're beholden to the platforms. They can go a little bit sideways. They, they got maybe a little bit of wiggle room. But it's the platform. So before we start accusing, have you read it? If you're a Republican, read the Democrat. If you're a Democrat, read the Republican. Then let's talk. Let's have some conversations, some intelligent conversations. And we may get to the point where we agree to disagree. That's okay. But we're still one in Christ. Simon the Zealot and Levi the tax collector. Read it. And then once you've read it, you say, which vote then furthers the kingdom of God? Which vote reflects best? I shared it with some of the guys in the church. I've been watching Tony Evans. He's preaching on kingdom voting. It's a recent one off his church in, uh, in Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in Dallas, Texas. I committed to you. It's on YouTube. Just follow it up. He's, this will be message number four of ten. And that's what he says. I'm a, I'm a kingdom independent. That's what he calls himself. I'm light either way, Republican or Democrat. Okay, I would challenge you to look and your vote, make it count. But make it count before the Lord first and foremost. And there has to be some type of shared mind, shared heart, shared soul. The next one is, you see there in verse 3, humility. Humility. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, 
Uh, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. You know what's humility? Everything that lacks when we, you and I talk about politics. That's what humility is. Just think about it. See, humility is not this fake, woe is me. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. You follow? We've said this here before. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not having the Eeyore complex. Woe is me. Woe is me. You're drawing attention to yourself. That's a form of pride. Is it not? If it's all about me, whether I'm calling attention to me, in one way or another, it's still pride. So it's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. You're not the center of the universe. Humility, humility. It's there, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. In verse 4, there's a service. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. This is not the busybody. The busybody goes from house to house so they can fuel their gossip. This is a servant who looks out, doesn't, get, doesn't wait until the need is brought forth, is actively looking at the people that God has brought together and saying, how can I serve the Lord by serving them? That's service. Verse 4. Have this, um, let each of you look not only to his own interest. So it's okay to look after your own interest, but also to the interest of others. It calls for an eye to serve instead of an eye to criticize or find fault. And all this is rooted in a reality. Verses 5 through 11, the firm foundation the life of Christ. Verse 5 connects the exhortation to the church with, with the reality of who Christ is. Verse 5, have this mind in, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born, born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the reality of these elements is because we have someone who modeled it par excellence. And what these elements represent is the perfect life. What was Jesus' uh, reward for living the perfect life? Dying the perfect death. As he fulfilled God's will for his life. Are you prepared to do the same? Are you prepared to give your life away in the service of him who owns you? Who's your master? Who modeled after you all that needs to be done and how it should be done. These elements say, yes, I belong to Christ and I belong to one another. So where do we go from here? It's a good question. The Lord's Supper is a reminder that yes, we belong to one another. In fact, that's the witness of Scripture regarding the early church. On the screen there, it's a well-known passage. Acts chapter 2, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, and as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all those people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. That was, that was the witness. A singular focus to the gospel. A singular focus to loving one another. To displaying the love of Jesus Christ to one another. Can that be said about you and me this morning? 
can that be said in light of our keyboard courage on social media? You know, you know most of what happens on social media is keyboard courage. We wouldn't say half of those things to each other in, in person. But hiding behind anonymity and then hiding behind the keyboard, keyboard courage. God help us because of our keyboard courage. May he speak to us even now as we prepare our minds and, and hearts for the Lord's Supper. Where, where are you this morning before the Lord? We've informed our minds and now our hearts are ready. And, and like I said, this is going to be so different, so different. I'm going to ask David to come and, and come over to the, uh, the keyboard. In just a few moments, if you want to, in your Bible, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 11. Like we said, these are elements, symbols of death. In just a few moments, we're going we're gonna to take it. I'm going to read something, and, and then I'll, I'll read the portion of Scripture that has to deal with the element, and then we partake of the element. But before we do that, w- let, let's just have a moment of prayer. Just would you, would you close your eyes and, again, bow your head in preparation for making much of the Lord's Supper. Could you come before the Lord and perhaps you need to, to confess? I, I, I haven't been honoring you in my dealings with my brothers and sisters in the Lord. I, I've, I've, in my heart and perhaps even in, in reality, I've canceled somebody out. That's not the call of Christ for you, child of God, for you to cancel someone out. Repent of that sin. Father, do your work and only you can. Boy, am I glad that you don't cancel me out when I fall short. Thank you that I'm sure and secure in your hands. I'm glad for, for your word in John 10 that no one can take me from your hand. You yourself put me in your hand, your sovereign salvation, and you're the one who keeps me there. Father, forgive us for cheapening the death of Christ. That which cost you your son. We've diluted that blood to the point that we're able, perhaps even willing, to cancel someone out, to take someone at their worst, to assume the worst without giving them an opportunity to talk. And even when we talk, Lord, we, our spirit is not right. Be with us even now. We we confess sin because we claim your promise that if we confess the sin, you are faithful and you are true to forgive and to cleanse. And we claim that now in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. There's a poem said, it should have been me. It should have been me crushed for my iniquity while I was an enemy. It should have been me despised and rejected. Smitten and afflicted, it should have been me. Broken and spilled out, God's wrath poured out. It should have been me. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, 
which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. And in remembrance of Christ, let's partake of the bread. Behold the Lamb who bears our sins away, slain for us, and we remember. The promise made that all who come in faith find forgiveness at the cross. So we share in this bread of life and we drink of his sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of peace around the table of our King. The body of our Savior, Jesus Christ, torn for you. Eat and remember. The wounds that heal, the death that brings us life paid the price to make us one. So we share in this bread of life and we drink of his sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of love around the table of the king. The blood that cleanses every stain of sin shed for you, drink and remember. He drained, he drained death's cup that all may enter in to receive the life of God. So we share in this bread of life and we drink of his sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of grace around the table of our king. And so with thankfulness and faith, we rise to respond and to remember our call to follow in the steps of Christ as his body here on earth. As we share in his suffering, we proclaim Christ will come again and will join in the feast of heaven around the table of the king. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me and in remembrance of Christ. Let's partake of the cup. as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And the good news is that Jesus is coming again. Amen? He is definitely our rock and our redeemer. Let's sing that song. It says The scripture says that after they had finished, they sang a hymn. It was probably part of the Hallel, Psalm 113 through 118, and they went into the Garden of Gethsemane. But for us, we will sing, Our Lord, O Lord, my rock, and my Redeemer, would you stand and join us and let's worship the Lord through this song. <laughs> 